It's the Burt Cohen Show. And what is the American dream? Boy, there's an awful lot of versions of that. We have the uh, the Tea Party people, which is something relatively new. Uh, many of the Tea Party do come out of the the older Christian right movement, which has been a, f- a minor force in American politics. It seems to be uh, more of a force than uh, a lot of us would have imagined. And uh, we're going to talk today about some of the background, some of the roots, some of the basic tenets of the Christian right and how it might affect the 2012 elections, if the Democrats can manage to uh, seize on it. But uh, Michelle Goldberg is our guest today. And Michelle, we all have seen how Democrats can so easily snatch defeat from the jaws of victory, right? Yeah, although if you don't mind, I want to go back and... um challenge two things that you said in your introduction. Okay. Um, first, I, I don't think that the Tea Party is a new movement. I no. mean, obviously the Tea Party is a new name, but it's a new name for a very old movement, which is, you know, a combination of a combination of um, suspicion of foreigners and foreign involvement, uh, a theory called producerism, which basically holds that kind of the hard-working middle class and small business owners are being bled dry both by a parasitic underclass and by kind of sinister cosmopolitan elites. And often a kind of apocalyptic version of American decline rooted in religious fundamentalism. I mean, this has been hallmarks of right-wing populism, you know, for you know, probably for a hundred years. And so I think that the Tea Party is just the latest iteration of a movement that we saw with the Know Nothings, that you saw with, most certainly with the John Birch Society. Um, one of the most interesting things about the Tea Party is that it not only, it hasn't only rehabilitated some of the ideas of the John Birch Society, um, ideas that were kind of considered anathema to the right wing, to a right wing that wanted to that wanted to make a bid for respectability. You know, kind of one of the the signal events in the modern right was when William Buckley denounced the John Birch Society, um, you know, in a a kind of, in a very long and and seminal article. Now we've seen not just the ideas rehabilitated, but the John Birch Society itself rehabilitated. And and then finally, um, the Christian right has, I think, absolutely not been a, a minor part of, of, of our politics. It's been a really major part of our politics since the Reagan election. Um, we wouldn't have had a second George W. Bush term without the religious right. And now, as the Republican Party, you know, 
<clears throat> increasingly drives out the old school kind of Rockefeller Republican mm-hmm. moderates, the Christian, um, you know, kind of the Christian right and the modern GOP are are almost the same thing. Well, it does seem to be uh, the case in terms of uh, where the uh, strength of the Republican Party is, and and certainly when you mention how the the Christian right has been strong since the Reagan era in American history. Yeah, there have been blips now and then. Before that, certainly there was uh, nativism in the 1930s, and there obviously has been uh, economic populism back in the the 1880s and the 1890s. My perception, Michelle, correct me if I'm wrong, was that in the 1890s with uh, William Jennings Bryan and, and that whole populist movement, that wasn't so much anti uh, corporate as uh, or anti government anti centralized government as uh, this this new party seems to be well i think that, look it's it's certainly the case that the um the kind of complete identification of christian fundamentalism and kind of conservative pro corporate politics mm-hmm. is something relatively new you know something that got its start with um with Ronald Reagan, and, and interestingly enough, and I'm sure we're going to talk about this, it very much parallels the, the career of Michelle Bachman. But it's also true that, you know, there was right-wing, um, you know, there was, there was Father Coughlin, uh, yes. who led the opposition mm-hmm. to, to the New Deal. There was, you know, magazines like the, the Cross and the Flag, which combined you know, both a kind of version of religious fundamentalism with anti, um, well, with kind of isolationist yeah. sentiment and an extreme version of laissez-faire economics. There was a great deal of religious fundamentalism right below the surface in the John Birch Society. I mean, right, the John Birch Society was actually named after John Birch, who was a missionary who was killed in China. And so I think that What's new is that the is that there was an evangelical upsurge in the 1970s yes. that was kind of part of the broader spiritual awakening of the country at large. You know, there, people used to call them Jesus freaks or That's Jesus right. people, and yep. they kind of came out of the same unsettled milieu that gave us a lot of the, you know, kind of alternative spiritual or religious movements of that era. And it wasn't at first that political. I mean... The first um, candidate who really brought these new born-again Christians into politics was Jimmy Carter. Yes. You know, who was the first kind of born-again... Evangelical. um, The first, you know, modern born-again presidential candidate. You know, Pat Robertson, you know, once said that he did everything he could short of violating, you know, FEC rules to get Jimmy Carter elected. Similarly, Michelle Bachman worked on the the Carter campaign, you know, danced Mm. at an inaugural ball... And it was only then in the late 70s that, the, that these evangelicals kind of en masse were recruited into this new right, the, you know, the right-wing movement that eventually became the moral majority and really, really mobilized behind Ronald Reagan. And in all this uh, enthusiasm, which somehow, uh, Michelle, I sense that you have about this subject, I uh, did not really let uh, uh, listeners know who you are. And uh, Michelle uh, is the author of the book's Kingdom Coming, The Rise of Christian Nationalism, a New York Times bestseller, uh, and also The Means of Reproduction, Sex, Power, and the Future 
of the World, about the international battle over reproductive rights. And her work has been published in the New, the New Republic, Rolling Stone, Glamour, and in The Guardian, the L.A. Times, and other newspapers. And now Michelle Goldberg, a senior correspondent for the American Prospect. And No, actually, that's that. that um, let me... Oh. I, I'm now a senior writer for Newsweek and the Daily Beast. Uh, Newsweek and the Daily Beast. A good combination, I have to say. I've seen impressive stuff from them. Well, you recently wrote about Francis Schaeffer, whom I never heard of. And, and this we, we've touched on a number of these issues, the rise of the, the Jesus freaks in the late 60s, early 70s, and the start of the culture war. And this guy, Francis Schaeffer, uh, has... Uh, it's his son, I guess. I'm, I'm confused as to which, which Francis Schaeffer it is, but there's a new book that, that you delve into quite a bit that, that sheds a lot of light on the real nature of the uh, fundamentalist right. So, Yeah, the new book is by his son, Frank Schaeffer. So Francis Schaeffer, you know, he's not nearly as well-known, I think, to people outside the evangelical movement as, say, a Pat Robertson or a Jerry Falwell or a Billy Graham. But he's... You know, I would say every bit as important as any of them. He was really an an intellectual, and he he was a missionary who had moved to Switzerland in the 1950s. He started something called um, Labri, which is a was it's a very it's it's very it's a very hard to think about in certain ways because it's so far removed from what we think of as kind of modern evangelical culture. It was a retreat, in some ways almost a commune in the Swiss Alps, where people came from all over the place to think deeply about kind of Christianity and and spirituality. And again, it didn't start out being a really political place. Um, you know, Billy Graham's kids went there, and Gerald Ford's kids went there, and, you know, Frank Schaefer wrote about how sometimes he would find himself seated at the dinner table with, say, Timothy Leary, you know, all sorts of different people. It was a time when people were, were kind of trying to think in, in new and different ways about, about religion. But Frank Schaefer, or Francis Schaefer, moved very abruptly to the right, um, you know, partly in reaction to the kind of cultural upheavals of the 1960s. He was influential in a couple of regards. Um, He was influential because he really formulated the idea of a Christian worldview. And that's an idea that I really wish that people outside the kind of evangelical um, milieu understood, because it's so important to understanding not just Michelle Bachman, but much of the modern Christian right, or actually, but much of the modern Republican Party. Um, The Christian worldview, the idea behind it is that Christianity, properly understood, is a total ideology that governs not just all kind of theological and moral questions, but all questions. It's a complete self-contained reality, so that you can, that only with the right worldview can you properly understand history, can you properly understand science, can you properly understand um, economics, and so essentially it holds that if you have, um, you know, any kind of facts or information that contradicts um, that contradicts the exact wording of the Bible, or at least the wording of the Bible is kind of interpreted by fundamentalist Christians, that that's the result of mistaken premises. So 
for example, evolution can be understood as the product of, if you believe in evolution, that can be understood as the um, product of an incorrect worldview or, or starting with the wrong premises, starting with kind of premises that the, that the fundamental questions about our physical reality can be answered with regard to the natural world instead of with regard to kind of supernatural intervention. And what this, what this has allowed the Christian right to do is to create an entire parallel reality. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so there are whole canons of not just sci- you know, science books and history books, you know, kind of every um, institution of ordinary, of ordinary life has been kind of recreated according to the Christian worldview. And where you start to see that matter, again, it's not just in debates over, over things like evolution. You know, Michelle Bachman is someone who was heavily in- influenced by Francis Schaeffer and who often talks about, the, you know, her, her Christian worldview. When she, she was really laughed at recently for talking about how the founders worked tirelessly to end slavery. And everybody assumed that that was, you know, a kind just of a, a, a gaffe. Right. But it really wasn't, you know, I mean, or at least it was, it was a different sort of mistake, because in the history books of the Christian right, and kind of in history books that are written from what people call a Christian worldview, that's really a truism. You know, they believe that America was founded as a Christian nation, right. that it had, um, in some ways, a sort of immaculate conception. Hmm. And so in order to square that, with, um, in order to square that with the institution of slavery, in order to, you know, kind of explain away the many, you know, sins and, and historical inadequacies of, of the Founding Fathers, they've had to come up with this revisionist history that holds that even the founders who had slaves were simply trying to protect them. Um, there, you know, Glenn Beck often will have, or often, he's done now, but he often used to have these television shows um, about what he called the Black Founding Fathers, which is a, a specialty of one of, of the one of the most famous historical kind of Christian worldview re- revisionists, a guy named David Barton. So anyway, so th- so so much of our politics now is, um, you know, we're not just debating opinion anymore. We're we're not just debating interpretation anymore. We're really debating kind of reality, you know, and, and mm-hmm. often the right seems to have not just its own ideas, but its own facts. And although I don't think you can attribute that completely to Francis Schaeffer, I think he gave, he, he gave that almost a kind of intellectual legitimization. So that's really fascinating. That sounds like something new, really, that uh, it all fits together. So there's uh, an assumption that this uh, Christian, right-wing Christian worldview is the right view. And I'm reminded of a, a show I had a few weeks ago where uh, the, the sort of human psychological nature of falling back on your beliefs, even when challenged by new information, new facts, the, the, the common, most common reaction is to not to accept the new facts, not to incorporate them and to open your mind, but to close your mind, to dig in your heels, and to fight for what you believe in. And now we have a uh, a presidential election going on, and it's a very uh, 
uh, stimulating thought there that uh, there's a large group of people who have really taken over the Republican Party now who fit everything under this umbrella of, uh, of a certain worldview, and everything has to fit with that. And that explains an awful lot of things. So that, uh, you know, with, uh, I believe it was Sarah Palin, although it may have been uh, Michelle Bachman, with regard to the Concord Lexington, not knowing what state it was in, maybe, you know, it's, it's like these things. You know, that, that's one of those things. That, that might have been a, just a mistake. It may, it may have been, because it's close by New Hampshire, Massachusetts. And also because there's no real ideological reason for, for anybody to place the battle in New Hampshire instead of in Massachusetts. No, but on other things like global warming, mm. you don't... That's it, absolutely true, yes. So you don't want to believe if it's something that doesn't fit this, uh, this neat reality. And uh, so this book by, by, about Francis Schaeffer by his son, what does he say about uh, the so-called Jesus freaks and the, the starting of the culture war? Because the Jesus freaks, as I remember, uh, they were in and amongst us uh, long-haired hippies on the left way back then, uh, seemed to be sort of with us in terms of their spirituality. But it, it seems like that's an interesting uh, point that perhaps some uh, start of the culture war really happened way back then, about uh, 40-some years ago. Well, a couple of things happened. I mean, first of all, there was, um, there was, a, there was a kind of a calculated attempt to enlist, you know, these new evangelicals into right-wing politics. One of the first things that really turned, and this is something that... Um, you know that that Randall Balmer, who's a who's both an evangelical and a professor um, of history at Columbia University, has written about. The first thing that really um, turned a lot of the evangelical leadership towards politics and towards Republican politics in particular was when, during the um, late 1970s, you know, a lot of after Brown versus Board of Education, a lot of um, a lot of Christians, there was um, the opening of what was called, you know, what people sometimes called segregation academies. They were basically segregated Christian schools right. that kind of kept alive, you know, all white schools under the, um, under the banners of being religious schools. And it was only in the late 70s that there was first a court ruling and then an IRS decision that these schools would no longer be eligible for um, yeah, federal funding, that, that, that they would no longer be, that they would have to pay taxes, basically, right. that you couldn't, um, you know, kind of claim the tax deduction of a religious institution if all you, if you only kind of existed um, to perpetuate segregation. And so this was the thing that really first awakened people like, for example, Jerry Falwell, who in the past had, you know, criticized Martin Luther King for his involvement in politics and had said that, you know, it's the duty of the church to stay out of politics, mm -hmm. at least when those politics were geared towards, you know, kind of ending racial discrimination in the United States. What, what Francis Schaeffer did was he introduced a new element into evangelical politics that was incredibly effective in rallying people, and that was abortion. You know, one of the kind of creation myths of the modern Christian right is that it rose up in reaction to Roe versus Wade. 
And that's really not true. You know, Roe versus Wade was decided in 1973. There was a lot of Catholic opposition, yes. but not a lot of evangelical opposition. Um, evangelicals saw it as a Catholic issue. And, you know, for much of kind of American modern religious history, evangelicals and Catholics were arch enemies. Yes. And so what Francis Schaeffer did was kind of elaborate a whole theory of abortion as being a sign of, you know, kind of apocalyptic decadence and decline. And so abortion quickly became the symbol of the kind of sexual anarchy um, loosed in America in the 60s and 70s, and, and really has been ever since then. And, and I think I'm, I'm getting the sense, and what I want to talk about in part is uh, the centrality of fear of sexuality. And it's it's kind of unclear to me and to a lot of people, I think, what their fascination and obsession with sex is. Uh, there have been so many uh, examples of uh, uh, people that I have heard in the New Hampshire State House talking about how marriage is about procreation, you know, beginning and end. It's just about procreation. It's not about uh, anything to do with uh, bonds between two people that have to do with sex. Uh, it's just about procreation. It's like something that you, you, you put up with. But the notion of of sex being something nice, something part of, of humanity that, that's a, a beautiful thing, seems to be impossible. And yet, I mean... I actually disagree with that to a certain extent. I okay. think one thing that evangelicals have done since the, um, you know, particularly since the 1980s, is they have, while kind of, you know, furiously condemning sex outside of marriage yes. or sex between um, gay partners, they've also, you know, they, they have given in, so to speak, on the issue of, you know, kind of the, the pleasures and beauties of marital sex. And so they often even will kind of almost fetishize marital sex. I remember interviewing, when I wrote my first book, I interviewed a woman who's very active in the abstinence-only um, mm -hmm. mo education movement and who's also very active in the anti-abortion movement. She explained to me that, you know, if two partners wait until marriage for sex, they'll be almost guaranteed um, simultaneous orgasms every time. Yeah. And, you know, Frank Schaefer, who recently wrote a book about his mother and his parents' marriage, wrote about how his mother used to counsel um, women that if they go off on missions with their husbands, you know, when they become missionaries, no matter where they're going, even if it's some, you know, kind of malarial part of sub-Saharan Africa, they have to make sure that they bring a black negligee. <laughs> okay. <laughs> what What is there really, it seems like there's a lot of uh, obsession with sex and, and a lot of, frankly, hypocrisy. People who... who you know that that's the thing that bugs a lot of people i think is is not so much that you know they're caught having sex or something like that but the the hypocrisy of it and i wonder if if uh you michelle goldberg could talk a little bit about the significance and pervasiveness of this hypocrisy among the social right or am i reading this one wrong as well no i think that that's right well i think that there's again there's a couple of different pieces to it i mean partly it's that the you know one of the things i wrote about in my second book is that every single traditional culture that we know of you know as margaret mead wrote 
a kind of one of the central poles of one of the central axes of you know most kind of traditional worldviews is the distinction between men and women. You know, every culture that we know of divides kind of human activity into male and female. Now, those divisions are somewhat arbitrary, not arbitrary, but they differ a lot among cultures, you know, so that there are cultures where people assume that women are kind of completely sexually rapacious and, you know, that men need to be protected by them. There's cultures that assume the opposite. Mm. So I'm not saying that these roles are somehow innate, but traditional cultures do, under, in general, understand, you know, they understand the world um, kind of along a male-female dichotomy. And one thing that modernity does really predictably is it breaks that dichotomy down. You know, suddenly the roles become a lot blurrier. Um, you know, they become a lot more, there's a lot more kind of fluidity sure. between the gender roles. And so people who hate modernity, you know, people who kind of long for the return of some imagined prelapsarian traditional Eden, it's not surprising that one of the first things that they kind of try to do, you know, with, with desperation and sometimes with brutality is to try to reassert traditional gender roles. Yes. Um, the other piece of it is that the, you know, is that kind of the Christian, is that um, the Bible really is incredibly, although the Bible's all, you know, also very kind of contradictory yes. about sex, um, you know, it's also full of real, you know, kind of terrible taboos, particularly about women's bodies that are, you know, kind of treated as unclean right. and you know, sinfully tempting, um, you know, there really are, there, there are all sorts of kind of prohibitions that have been, I think, you know, that are amplified by the, you know, kind of puritanical cast right. of, right. Um, of American evangelical Christianity, or of evangelical Christianity in particular, you know, kind of comes from, you know, very puritanical roots. And so here you have that Oh, are you there? Uh, hello. Keep. Oh, yes. What's going on here? Hello? Yes, I can hear you now. There was a sudden lapse in communications here. Okay. Um, so what I was saying was that, you know, evangelical Christianity, or at least, you know, kind of version of evangelical Christianity practiced by the modern right, has a level of kind of sexual purity that yes. most people can only achieve, if at all, through tremendous repression, and actually that few people can achieve at all. Right. And so when you set yourself up as a, as a moral arbiter in this way, and that, you know, when you kind of, you set yourself up as somebody who's willing to, you know, whose, whose role it is to kind of condemn your fellow Americans for their real or imagined moral failings, you obviously have to engage in a lot of kind of furious denial mm -hmm. about your own um, either temptations or your own actions. Um, you know, Frank Schaefer's book about his parents, I think, suggests that there are two things at, at work. I mean, on the one hand, there's just a level of sheer elitism, a view that, you know, well, it's okay if I do this because it's just my, you know, because I'm kind of strong and it's just my own personal 
peccadillo and you know if the whole if if everybody did this sort of thing the country would collapse into chaos you know and so so on the one hand there's just kind of this, this self-forgiving elitism and then there's also just a level of um of of acting out that's probably hmm. exacerbated by the kind of sexual obsessions and repressions of the ideology itself yeah the the obsession and repression just I see. It struck me. My experience with with some of the uh, fundamentalists is that, that they're a heck of a lot more focused and obsessed with sex than those of us who are not fundamentalists, and it's just repressed so much. And I, I wonder, you know, why it is the these you know, hardcore Puritans of the right so frequently end up destroying their political careers or, or their own uh, careers with sex scandals. And I'm trying to, was it uh, Jimmy Swaggart a few years ago who was uh, uh, condemned for, he had some sexual indiscretion and, you know, he had a lot of power. And I wonder about this, you know, we've seen cases like uh, Anthony uh, Weiner, John Edwards, and other people like that who, you know, fall into the... Uh, what what Henry Kissinger talked about power as the ultimate aphrodisiac, and it seems imagine this that the right is subject to the same uh, uh, workings that if they get you know strong men in particular you know powerful men they also uh, you know see that oh, well perhaps I have so much power I can you know do this sexual dalliance and and somehow have some power over that does that. The frequency of this does that not? How, how does the, uh, the the how do the fundamentalists deal with that? Can, can they just accept that as oh well, it's a failing, or how do they deal? Well, with yeah, that? I mean, in a certain sense, they're they're almost better equipped to deal with it. You know, if for example, if Anthony Weiner had been a fundamentalist Christian, he could have fallen down on his knees, said he sinned, gone into some sort of you know seclusion and counseling, and then you know, emerged with the slate wiped clean. You know, I mean, because evangelicals do believe in this notion of, you know, in this notion of sin and redemption, it um, you're never going to kind of disprove that idea by pointing out the frequency with which people sin. The, the one thing I do think um, is interesting is the extent to which you see evangelicals and kind of conservative Christian men become, um, who have made, you know, a career out of pontificating against homosexuality, you know, frequently emerges gay themselves. And that, I think there's a slightly different dynamic at work there. Um, You know, one thing that the Christian right says is that homosexuality is a choice and with, you know, enough kind of willpower and spiritual fortitude, you can uh, overcome it. Be healed, yeah. And I think that for somebody who is, you know, born into a very conservative world, who is gay and who doesn't want to be, Mm -hmm. that might be a very appealing message. I mean, one of the undercurrents in so much of the Christian rights railing against homosexuality, there's always an assumption that it is incredibly tempting and that if we allow gay marriage, I seem to have lost the voice again. I don't know what's going on here. Oh my! She's not there. Oh, I don't know. Oh, 
there, and an incredible temptation that everybody fights against, and that only kind of through incredible social sanction does anybody consent to the inferior pleasures of heterosexuality. You would only that you would only really believe that if you're coming from a deeply closeted place. Yes. And it it does strike me. I get this sense that there's a lot of deeply closeted space. Like a lot of these uh, guys in particular are just, they can't stand something within themselves that that is drawn to to homosexuality. And I remember, uh, Michelle, perhaps uh, you saw this skit by uh, Bobcat Goldthwaite quite a while ago. Uh, It was a uh, like a 19 year old straight white guy beating up on a guy who he perceived to be gay. And he's smashing him and punching him and saying i hate you i hate you because you're you're queer and 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 i'm kind of attracted to you and i don't know what to do about it and i think that that's i can't help but think that that's a lot of it and so but but the the fundamentalist men can say oh this is a fault they get down on their knees and they can still be on the path of righteousness is that how it works well look i mean anthony weiner resigned from congress um david vitter's who yeah, still there. hired a prostitute who later, you know, commits suicide because of the scandal is still a member in good standing of the Senate. Yes. That is amazing. That is amazing that he could do that. Uh, we are talking with Michelle Goldberg on the Burt Cohen Show, the author of the books Kingdom Coming, The Rise of Christian Nationalism, and uh, The Means of Reproduction, Sex, Power, and the Future of the World. And as as mentioned before, the different roles that people are expected to have. There was a uh, a big hearing on equal marriage uh, here in New Hampshire a couple of years ago, and a guy stood up and said, "This whole problem began. It's all about uh, the problems that we've had since women stopped wearing skirts and dresses and started wearing pants." And I thought that was amazing enough. But then a lot you of the- that's amazing, but that's also not entirely wrong. Well, it's true, and a lot of people cheer to that, and I think you're right that it is, it's not wrong. That is some of the stuff that's changing. People are having, it's part of the culture war, but uh, go on, Michelle. Well, I think one of the reasons that, again, that gay marriage is so threatening to the right and so um, liberating and important to the rest of us, whether we're gay or heterosexual, is that it's kind of an, it, it is very much an affirmation of the fluidity of gender roles, right? If marriage does not, if marriage is not about the kind of, you know, union of two opposite and unequal people, it, you know, if, if marriage is not, if the kind of roles of men and women are not etched in stone or etched in the Bible or, you know, handed down by God, but are really a negotiation between two people about how to form a family, then, you know, I would say certainly, you know, from my point of view, the institution of marriage is strengthened, but the institution of marriage is understood by religious fundamentalists as being an ultimate affirmation of the immutability of of gender divisions. You know, that's really undermined. So, again, while I would say gay marriage kind of strengthens marriage as an egalitarian institution, when they say that that gay marriage is a threat to straight marriage, you know, and a lot of people kind of scratch their head and say, you know, certainly my marriage hasn't been hurt right. by, you know, by the fact that gay that now more are. more people can kind of participate in this institution. If what they're saying is not totally crazy within the terms of their own ideology, 
Well, that is fascinating because I've, I've wondered. I could never figure out how any one marriage has any impact on any other marriage. But you're really shedding some light here that if to them, uh, and I could say them because I'm not one of them, <laughs> that they can see that it's not supposed to be uh, a, a, a marriage of equals. There's the male role. There's the female role. And the gay marriage is indeed a threat to that uh, basic assumption. Fascinating, fascinating. And I've seen, I've, I've witnessed, you know, they talk about family life a lot. They talk about family values a lot. And I, I've witnessed families of, and I'm sure there's a great variation, a great variation, but I have witnessed some uh, uh, fundamentalist right families where not only is the woman repressed, but there's uh, intense uh, a repression of the children. I've seen the children being, you know, very rigid and scared to act. And uh, I've heard it said that the opposite of gay is grim. They seem to be <laughs> very grim. And then what happens often from that is is predictable that, you know, repress, 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 bam, then they explode. Well, you know, on the one hand, I'm reluctant to generalize. I mean, there are certainly, you know, conservative evangelical parents who are loving and warm. Yes. You know, one of the things that Frank Schaefer said about his parents, which I thought was so interesting, or at least about his mother, was that she was a much better person than her God. You know, or she was much kinder than yeah. her God. Huh. And she was, you know, would kind of try to soften the tyrannical uh -huh. um, sure. implications of her religious beliefs. And that was kind of the central tension of her life. And I think that there's probably... A lot of people like that. At, at the same time, I think, you know, it, and, and also I'm sure that, you know, there are, there are liberal parents who do a terrible job. Oh, absolutely. At the same time, oh, sure. it, at the same time, there is kind of built into the evangelical family model, it is much more hierarchical and authoritarian. Yes. Um, you know, there's much more of an emphasis on discipline and and even, you know, physical discipline. There are whole manuals out there urging you not just to spank your, your children, but to spank your wife when she misbehaves. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah, okay, I, 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 I'm getting a clear picture here. And, and so there is this clearly uh, a pervasive belief in the subordination of women, that women have their roles to play, and, and that's how it is. And it's been curious to me and a lot of people that people like Hillary Clinton are seen as like devils or something. She's not known for her you know, physical beauty. She's known for her abilities in many other ways. Whereas, uh, for better or worse, whatever, Sarah Palin and Michelle Bachman, perhaps they can be strong women and powerful women because... They're more attractive. I'm, I'm not quite sure of, of what's going on there, but why are, you know, they're not feminists, clearly. Is it that they're reinforcing that, that they, that, that well, men I think there's have a power? couple of things going on. I mean, on the one hand, you know, we have reached a point, um, I think a laudable point in American culture and American politics, when nobody wants to be called sexist. 
you know, people used, it, people used to be proud to claim right. that men were superior to women. Nobody's going to say that out loud anymore. Mm. You know, similarly, nobody is going to say out loud anymore that they believe in white supremacy. I mean, right, that used to be the, the, the stated position sure. of a lot of people in our politics. Yes. It no longer is. And in fact, you know, the right now considers being called racist to be the kind of greatest and, and most outrageous of slurs. And so because of that, anybody who allows them to prove that they're not, in fact, racist, um, you know, is somebody that they gravitate towards. So, while, the, for example, while the Tea Party, you know, kind of traffics in racial resentment, you know, while they kind of try to paint the president as somehow foreign and un-American and, you know, yeah. pretend that he was really born in Kenya. Um, you know, while there's a lot of, you can see, you know, there's re, there's a kind of amazing advertisement right now up in a congressional race in California, a special election in California. It's really, you know, there's this, it's astonishing. It shows basically gangsters with guns, you know, kind of rapping and a woman pole dancing about how, you know, kind of give me your money, bitch, or something like that, essentially kind of saying that this Democrat is going to hand over money to to gangsters. So there's a huge amount of kind of, you know, roiling racial resentment beneath the surface, but nobody wants to be accused of racism, you know, which is why Herman Cain is such a godsend to the right, sure. because not only does he, you know, let them prove by supporting him that they're not racist, but he constantly says, you know, you're not the racist the left is. And, and you know, and, and the right loves that. And I think there's something similar going on with these female candidates. You all of a sudden get, you know, they get the kind of pleasures of claiming victimhood. They get the pleasures of accusing the left of hypocrisy. And at the same, and, and for female candidates and for kind of women, you know, women, there's been women leaders of the right um, for a long, long time. Phyllis Schlafly. Yeah, yeah exactly. Phyllis Schlafly, Beverly LaHaye. One of the things, from their point of view, it's a pretty good deal because you get to escape the confines of the roles that, you know, very, that, that the right mm-hmm. sets aside for women. But as long as you do it in the name of that ideology and as long as you do it while reaffirming that ideology, you don't get any of the backlash that, um, comes with being a kind of feminist right. trying to trying to trying to claim power. You know, you really get the both the best of both worlds. You get kind of treated with the chivalry and deference that the right reserves for ladies and yes. you get the power and kind of public voice that feminists have demanded for women. Very clever, very clever. So that's how Michelle Bachman and uh, Sarah Palin can can get away with that a combination of uh, of interesting factors. We're talking with Michelle. Yeah, basically, if you're willing to reaffirm the values of the right in public, you don't have to live by them in private. Ah, <laughs> I love it. Well, I, I want to look at the upcoming election. It's it's 2012 already. It really is, and uh, it, it the, the there's a split. It seems to me, and Michelle, I'm sure you could talk to this, in the Tea Party, because many in the Tea Party are uh, what they call fiscal conservatives, and then there are the social 
conservatives. Uh, and it's kind of two factions there. I, I, again, I think I want to push back on that. I mean, maybe in New Hampshire that's the case, where you have, you know, a big libertarian contingent. We do. But all of but the Tea Party as a whole, all of the polling shows that the Tea Party is actually more socially conservative than the Republican Party as a whole. It is overwhelmingly opposed to abortion, <clears throat> overwhelmingly opposed to gay marriage. If you look at you know the people who've emerged as the tea, as Tea Party leaders, they come out of the religious right, and so I see the Tea Party. Less is a, you know, it's funny, there was a, a, there was a story, you know, this has been kind of a meme, this idea that the Tea Party represents some kind of libertarian challenge to the Christian right. It's been, it's something that I think, you know, the mainstream media got a hold of and hasn't been able to let go of, no matter how many times it's disproven. And I remember there was a story in Politico, and one of the people they quoted was Brian Fisher, who is a, um, you know, kind of above and beyond in terms of his antipathy towards gay people. I mean, he basically believes, as do some other people on the far right, that homosexuality, or that the, the homosexual movement, as he, as he might call it, is the direct descendant, descendant of Nazism, that oh the gay rights movement are modern brown shirts. They have, you know, I talked before about an alternative reality. Well, they have, you know, whole right. books... Um, designed to kind of bolster this really, you know, lunatic conspiracy theory about gay people. But so, so the story in Politico quoted Brian Fisher saying, you know, that he was worried about the libertarianism of the Tea Party. And this story became, you know, kind of conventional wisdom among a lot of people talking about this. And what it didn't say is that Brian Fisher, although he was worried about the libertarian elements in the Tea Party, was also one of the founders of Idaho's Tea Party chapter and is a popular speaker at Tea Party groups. And that the American Family Association had kind of lent their um, web platform for to a lot of Tea Party organizers. So, you know, although there might be ten- some tensions, these are kind of interfamily tensions, you know, that, that any social movement has. But... The Tea Party and the Christian right are much more, there's, there's, there's much more overlap between them than there is division. Uh, that, that's uh, interesting, because uh, I've certainly, that you're right, the mainstream media always loves a fight, it always loves good drama. And, and so, well, the mainstream media also has, I think, a very hard time taking religious fundamentalism seriously. It keeps hoping that it will go away. Yeah. It kind of imagines that people don't really believe these things. And so, you know, and if the, the, if the mainstream media has an ideological bias, I don't, it's not, it's not towards liberalism, no. it's towards, um, you know, basically if the mainstream, you know, if there could be a, it's towards a version of kind of centrist fiscal conservatism with mild social liberalism, right. you know, and so they keep imagining that the, that eventually the Republican Party is going to Shape evolve up. in a similar direction, but that's uh, just not the that's not the party. That's not the base. That's just not who they are. Interesting. Well, we have the rise of of people like Michelle Bachman and Kane and Palin and and even uh, uh, that uh, Grand Chameleon uh, uh, Mitt, Mitt Romney is uh, you know kissing up to the right. 
But a lot has changed. In 2004, it doesn't, to me, seem that long ago, according to one exit poll in 2004, 22% of voters cited moral values as their biggest concern choosing between Bush and Kerry. Now, just seven years later, most Americans, according to all polls I've seen, are okay with gay marriage. Mm-hmm. I, I wonder, and, and uh, uh, most Republicans certainly still oppose marriage equality. And uh, this, this thing about moral values, I, I wonder if uh, the language now of moral bravery and family values really belongs more to the marriage equality side. And I wonder how significant that may be for the upcoming election. Well, I think it's it's significant in certain... I mean, look, it's hugely significant in that the nationally, the numbers on this have really shifted. Gay marriage was a huge wedge issue for the Republicans in 2004. Yes. You know, one of the reasons that the Republicans put game or, you know, championed gay marriage amendments on so many state ballots like Ohio is that they didn't just kind of rile up the troops, but they allowed megachurches to engage in a lot of politicking and campaigning and get out the vote work under the guise of a kind of ostensibly nonpartisan issue. So, you know, a church could kind of set up a, you know, electoral headquarters and do, you know, voter registration drives and get out the vote drives without violating their IRS status because they were doing it for marriage, not, you know, not on behalf of Democrats or Republicans. Wink, that wink. was so important. It's, it's hard to overstate how important that was in states like Ohio, which, you know, proved pivotal to re-electing, to re-electing Bush. Right. What's so amazing is how quickly gay marriage has moved towards a place where it could now potentially be a wedge issue for Democrats. I mean, if you look at what happened in New York... It was, you know, now on the one hand, you know, some people, I think that, you know, Eric Alterman um, wrote a really smart piece in the Daily Beast, and other people have written this as well, that, you know, our politics are maybe really most responsive to the policy preferences of billionaires. And so as long as you have an issue that has a lot of kind of, you know, billionaire support, you're going to... um, be able to make pretty rapid progress. And so what you saw in New York was a coalition of Democrats, except for one, you know, the, the egregious Ruben Diaz, but the vast majority of Democrats, a, a governor who, and this is important, I think, a governor who saw this issue not just as being kind of morally correct, but as having, you know, as being kind of a stepping stone, right? It's pretty remarkable that the governor of a major state would see passing gay marriage as being the way to kind of advance his his career. I think that shows you where things are changing. And then you also had Republicans, you know, including some who had previously campaigned against gay marriage, finally, when confronted with the facts, when confronted with constituents who are just trying to build their families, were really unable to come up with a reason to vote against this. You know, I thought it was really, there was, you know, a really beautiful statement by one Republican who kind of said, you know, fuck it, I'm going to try to do the right thing, and and, and voted for marriage equality on the basis of that. Yes. Um, So, nevertheless, so right now, it's not really an effective tactic for the right to demagogue against gay marriage, especially on a national scale. It certainly is within their own party, though, because while a a bare majority of Americans now supports gay marriage 
and a large majority of Democrats, and even a pretty comfortable majority of independents, yeah. over 70% of Republicans continue to oppose it. Um, and this is one of the reasons, I think, that Obama should really, you know, kind of complete his evolution and come out for gay marriage, because it could potentially be a wedge issue that would separate the Republican base from, you know, kind of the Republican billionaires and from a lot of the, you know, hedge fund money and the people who vote Republican based on kind of small government and financial issues. Yeah, the real power behind government. Well, I wonder, uh, Michelle, if Democrats can find uh, the cojones to take advantage of this wedge that uh, is happening. And because there certainly would be a risk, as at least as I understand it, if, uh, say, Obama were to somehow find a backbone, could happen, I suppose, and and come out for uh, marriage equality. If the Democrats do that, isn't there a risk of alienating blacks who are largely not for equal marriage and Hispanics on, on such issues? And they don't want to alienate them. And the Democrats in general, as you know, have been exceedingly cautious. And I just... I wonder if they have the, the courage to take this on and see it as a um, winning issue. Well, there certainly, you know, well, certainly many black churches have been uncomfortable yes. with gay marriage. The, the idea that African-Americans are going to turn their back on Obama over this issue strikes me as fairly unlikely, far-fetched. Yeah. Um, you know, and similarly with Hispanics. I mean, I think that if Obama is in trouble with Hispanics, which he's not, I mean, he still yeah. has, you know, majorities, although oh, yeah. maybe not the, the super majorities that he needs. The way to get them on board is to do more on behalf of the DREAM Act, to do more on behalf of people facing deportation. You know, this is, they might oppose it, but it's not a major you know, do or die issue for them in the way that it is for um, for some for the religious right. Uh huh. And the fundamentalists are strong within the Republican Party. Well, how how strong is it? Do you think? I, I I keep imagining what it must be like in the boardrooms of the Republican National Committee because they traditionally have not been the fundamentalists. But are they entirely comfortable with that? Is that the direction they're going to go in? And I wonder how they're. They're handling this whole move to the pretty far right. Do you have any indication? Well, of that? it's funny. I mean, they've kind of created a monster, right? For a long time, they <laughs> nurtured this movement, thinking that they could, you know, kind of string it along, give it, you know, say the right things, um, you know, kind of affirm it, you know, affirm them as kind of so-called real Americans, and right. then put, you know, fairly pro-business conservatives into office. I mean, although to a certain extent, you know, George W. Bush was a shift, although George W. Bush still at least, you know, had one foot in the traditional Republican Party. Yeah. Um, you know, one of, one of the things we saw in the last election was that as bad as 2010 was for Democrats, it also, you know, there was also some real danger signs for the Republicans who, mm-hmm. you know, saw many kind of otherwise winnable seats lost because their base nominated people like Sharon Engel right. or Christine O'Donnell, you yes. know, because their base has basically decided that <clears throat> that they, you know, that they should be able to, you know, um, choose to elect one of their own for the party that they now 
substantially control. Yeah, so it's kind of a danger time. But I don't, again, I don't know if Democrats can are strong enough to to really take advantage of it. We shall see. And one of, of course, the underlying issues with fundamentalism, as as you have written so much, is uh, is sex and sexuality, and uh, it's an interesting issue as it plays out. Michelle Goldberg, author of Kingdom Coming, The Rise of Christian Nationalism and the Means of Reproduction, Sex, Power, and the Future of the World. And if you want to read her stuff, it's on regularly on that wonderful news site, The Daily Beast, which is working with Newsweek as well. Michelle Goldberg, thank you so much for being with us today. Very, very informative. Thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. All right, and uh, I'd love to hear from listeners, Bert at BertCohen.com. It's largely all about sex, I guess. Thanks for listening.
Corey Coriel.